Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi folks and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is Fatal Feuds for The Fall of the Red Earl. This show opens as Ireland stands on the brink of one of the biggest battles in our medieval history, the Battle of Athenry. Previous instalments of the Fatal Feud series have seen the de Burgh family emerge as a superpower in medieval Ireland, that is until 1315 when the Scots invaded Ulster. In part 3 we saw how the Scot Edward Bruce enjoyed a stunning victory over Richard de Burgh, the Red Earl of Ulster, at the Battle of Connor, where he also took William Leah de Burgh prisoner. Shattered by that defeat and the loss of William Leah, the de Burgh family faced an uprising in their lordship of Connacht as their one-time allies, the O'Connors, attacked them. At the end of the last instalment of Fatal Feuds, the Red Earl paid an enormous ransom for his cousin William's freedom as he needed him to fight the O'Connors. This show opens as William Leah de Burgh arrives back in Ireland. Whether it birthed in Dublin or Drogheda, when the ship carrying William Leah de Burgh reached Ireland, it can only have been greeted with mixed emotions. While the man undoubtedly was the best battle commander the Normans in Ireland had, the ransom paid for his freedom was staggering. The Red Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burgh, had betrayed the garrison of Carrickfergus Castle and effectively handed them over to the Scots for his cousin's freedom. In July, the Red Earl had diverted several ships packed with food for that garrison to Scotland as one of the conditions of William Leah's ransom. Under siege for nearly a year, this guaranteed the garrison would have to surrender. Indeed, when the gates of Carrickfergus would finally open to the Scots in autumn 1316, the garrison had been reduced to eating the bodies of Scots prisoners. However, the de Burgh family themselves had paid a pretty high price for William's freedom as well. As he left Scotland, his infant son Edmund had taken his place in captivity. The risks of this move and the dangers facing the youngster were very real. 
The Scots wanted the baby as a hostage, plain and simple. William Leah had to swear not to attack the Scots in Ireland again, and if he broke that vow, his young son's life would be forfeit. While you might think no one would stoop so low as to kill an infant, the previous twenty years of warfare between England and Scotland had seen acts of barbarism that would make your blood run cold. If chroniclers are to be believed, the famous Scots leader in this war, William Wallace, a.k.a. Braveheart, wore a belt fashioned from the skin of an English official, Hugh of Cressingham. The life of this child would have troubled few if his father double-crossed the Scots. While so many suffered for his freedom, William Leah had been brought back to Ireland for one purpose and one purpose alone. He was not going to risk his son's life by fighting the Scots in Ireland. Instead, he would risk his own life by heading into the cauldron that was the west of Ireland, where the Normans were on their knees, facing raids and attacks from the O'Connors. He was going to try and organise the defence of his family's lordship of Connacht that seemed in danger of being completely overrun by the O'Connors, who had turned against their former overlords. His chances of success did not look good. While the de Burghs had once dominated the west of Ireland with an iron fist, much had changed during William Leah's year in captivity. Their defeat by the Scots in 1315 had shattered the de Burgh family's power and they increasingly looked like an ageing champion fighter past their prime and somewhat out of shape after their defeat. They had taken multiple blows in the past year and seemed increasingly unable to defend themselves. To make matters worse, while the de Burghs looked like they were past their peak, their main enemies in the West, the O'Connor family, had found in their young king a man who was a rising star. Phelan O'Connor, the 23-year-old King of the O'Connors, was the rising star of medieval Ireland by 1316. Once an ally of the de Burghs, he had even marched north with the Red Earl and William Leah in 1315 to drive the Scots from Ulster when they had invaded. In the following months of chaos that swept through Ireland, the young King Phelan had proven himself well able to adapt to this changing situation. He had defeated his cousin Rory, who had tried to take his throne, and then, in 1316, realising the weakness of the de Burghs, he had turned on them too. But Phelan, like all successful kings, had an insatiable thirst for power, and he and those around him had ambitions far beyond defeating the de Burghs. As a distant relative of Rory O'Connor, the last High King of Ireland who had died in 1198, Phelan had a legitimate claim to be High King himself. Now true enough, the Scot Edward Bruce had laid a claim on the title after his invasion of 1315, but the O'Connors had never agreed or accepted that. As his power grew, Phelan had pushed ahead and had laid a rival claim to the title as well, and if anything, he was more successful than Bruce. While Edward Bruce never really succeeded in gaining much support outside of Ulster and the O'Neill family, Phelan found supporters across Ireland. The weight of history pushing Phelan forward must have been remarkable. He looked like someone who could extend his power over large parts of Ireland, the first Gaelic Irish man to do this in well over a century. The first step was to reverse the Norman invasion of his homelands in Connacht and through early 1316 he raided and ravaged the Norman castles and lands in the west, 
However, by July, after the return of William Lear de Burgh, he knew the Normans were now steeled by the presence of this legendary battle commander. Phelim acted decisively, calling his allies to march on de Burgh, who was at the town of Athenry amassing an army. This call met with success, as kings from a far field as Munster and Meath rallied to his standards. The enormity of the battle that now lay ahead at Athenry could not be overestimated. If defeated, it was hard to see how the de Burghs could ever recover. However, as he moved south through Connacht, moving inexorably towards his destiny at Athenry, Phelim was too smart to take anything for granted. He knew the man waiting for him there, William Leah de Burgh, only too well. Having fought in battles across the west for over twenty years, de Burgh was a renowned warrior. In a very different time seven years earlier, but what seemed now like a lifetime ago, it had been William Leah who had installed Phelim as King of the O'Connors by bringing a Norman army into the O'Connor lands to support Phelim's bid to be king. The terror William Leah struck into the Gaelic Irish of the West had worked on that occasion. To win, Phelim would now have to overcome that fear in the battle ahead. By early August, Phelim, with his great army, descended on Athenry, where William Leah de Burgh was amassing an army with the support of Richard de Birmingham, the Lord of Athenry. Had the timing of the battle been at de Burgh and de Birmingham's choosing, they wouldn't have gone to war so quickly. They needed a few weeks more. William Leah was just back in the west, and preparations were rushed. However, the day of reckoning could not be put off. On the morning of August the 10th, 1316, as William Leah de Burgh and Phelim O'Connor were strapped into their armour, both men knew they may well have seen the sun rise for the last time. It was difficult to see how the loser could survive the coming battle. The anticipation of this gargantuan encounter must have been immense as the soldiers looked across the battlefield at the opposing armies. Each man knew that he or many of those around him would not live to see the sun set. However, when the battle was joined, these considerations undoubtedly evaporated in the heat of a struggle that proved to be one of the biggest battles of the age. In this encounter, for those in the front lines, they could have had no sense of what was happening. Surrounded by a heaving mass of screaming men, all perspective disappeared in the red mist of war. However, by the day's end, it was William Leah de Burgh who basked in the setting sun as he pulled off what was an astonishing victory. He, along with Richard de Birmingham, had led the Normans to a stunning victory against the odds, justifying that terrible price paid for William Leah's ransom. Phelan O'Connor could not and did not survive the battle. The 23-year-old was killed at Athenry with thousands of others. The annals of Connacht recalled the words of an anonymous Gaelic Irish poet who reflected, Many of the men of all Ireland lay dead about that great field. Many a king's son, who I name not, of the Mead and Munster hosts, was filled in that great rout. My heart rused the fight. In his great victory, William Leah de Burgh had stopped a total collapse of his family's power in the west, and immediately afterwards he began to push home the advantage. Gathering his forces, he pushed north into the heart of the O'Connor's territories, where the remainder of the family submitted to his immense power. They were utterly shattered by their defeat. However, the de Burghs were still a significantly weaker force than they had been, and this was evident for all to see. 
when William Leah tried to break the resistance amongst the MacDermots of Moylarg in North Roscommon, he failed and he could not make them submit. While the Battle of Athenry ended the aspirations of the O'Connors, it didn't return peace to the West. In the aftermath, the dead King Phelim's cousin succeeded him, but this just triggered a murderous cycle of violence among the O'Connor family. Within four months, this successor was deposed and killed by the hand of his own cousin. In 1317, Thurlock O'Connor took power, but he scarcely lasted a year before he too was deposed. In another round of assassinations and coups, Cahill O'Connor eventually took power, but he had to turn to William Leah de Berg for support and protection in fear of his own relatives. The peace that followed this was temporary, to say the least. While William the Ed de Berg could still command the fear and respect of Manny, he could no longer rule the West as he once had, imposing peace on families such as the O'Connors. Various factions of that family continued to vie for power in a violent struggle. But that said, after the crushing defeat at Athenry, none risked a direct confrontation with the de Burghs. Elsewhere, the de Burgh family fortunes were still plummeting. The Scots had total control over their lands in Ulster and William Leah didn't dare lead his victorious armies against them in fear of his son's life who was still a prisoner in Scotland. Meanwhile a very serious situation developed in 1317 when the family patriarch, the Red Earl, was caught up in and became the target of one of the earliest popular rebellions in Dublin's history. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In the last episode, we saw how the Red Earl of Ulster, Richard de Burgh, seems to have been somewhat struck by paralysis after his defeat at the Battle of Connor. While he retreated to Connacht initially, we saw he found few allies there and was described as a wanderer up and down Erin with no power or lordship that year. Indeed, his best and most decisive act in the years following the Battle of Connor was the ruthlessness he illustrated when he paid the ransom of William Leah de Burgh in 1316. While William Leah went out west to battle with the O'Connors, the Earl seems to have been a bystander in these events. Probably residing in Rathoth, a day's ride from Dublin, he was somewhat removed from the fighting. 
However, in early 1317, this all changed. Early the previous year, after a major attack south, the Scots invaders had retreated back to Ulster, where they remained for the rest of 1316. However, in January 1317, large numbers of additional Scottish troops began to arrive in Ulster. While the Normans of Ireland were completely unaware, the Scots were preparing for a major winter offensive. Even Robert the Bruce, the King of Scotland, arrived in Ireland to lead this army. The Scots planned to drive south from Ulster, aiming to devastate the Norman colony and eventually attack Dublin. If this port, the political heart of Norman Ireland, fell, it could be a fatal blow, and the Scots had good reason to be hopeful. The Norman resistance since their arrival in Ireland had been woeful, and yet again, when the Scots marched south in January 1317, they caught the Normans off guard. No preparations were made and the first the colonists seemed to know of what was happening was when the Scots forces poured through the gap of the north from Ulster into the colonial areas of Louth and Mead. The Red Earl, now residing at Rathoth in Mead, was clearly in danger and he immediately fled ahead of the advancing Scots to Dublin. Arriving in the city and bringing news of an imminent attack, de Burgh took up residence in St Mary's Abbey, a large religious complex that stretched along the north bank of the River Liffey. With word that the Scots were only days away, panic swept through the streets of medieval Dublin. This understandable hysteria was infused with deep resentments that had bubbled away in the city for well over a decade, producing an explosive situation. These resentments began to focus on the Red Earl himself, so it's worth taking a look at them in detail. The resentments and tensions originated in the actions of Norman colonial armies raised by the nobility to fight for the king in Scotland over the previous few decades. These armies were notoriously unruly and caused mayhem even when they were on home soil. As early as 1306, Dubliners had attacked and killed several soldiers in the coombe outside the city walls. To make matters worse, supplying these armies fueled tensions in the city even further. Purveyors, those contracted to purchase supplies for the king's armies, were prone to arriving in Dublin, taking what they needed and reimbursing merchants with little more than promises of future payment. These purveyors had sparked organised opposition as early as 1304 when the reigning mayor of Dublin, Geoffrey de Morton, was imprisoned for spearheading resistance. The Bruce invasion had only made this situation worse. In 1315, when the Justicier, Edmund Butler, marched through the city on his way north to fight the Scots, his army had ransacked the suburbs of Dublin. Now, in 1317, as the city faced siege, none of these troublesome armies were on hand. When the Red Earl arrived in the city in February, bringing news of the impending Scottish siege, this proved too much for the residents of Dublin to bear. The fact that the most powerful noble in Ireland, Richard de Burgh, had arrived with little more than a private retinue seeking refuge in Dublin crystallised many of the problems the nobility caused for the people of Dublin. This led to a climate of tension, anger, paranoia and fear in the city. The Scots had already carried out terrible massacres and the population of Dublin could expect no mercy if the walls were breached. Increasingly, the anger in Dublin began to focus on the Red Earl himself. No one represented noble interests more than this man who had dominated life in Ireland since the 1280s. In this climate, old rumours, 
that de Burgh was in fact helping the Scots resurfaced and circulated through the city. These were totally untrue, but even the fact that the earldom of Ulster had been more or less destroyed by the invading Scots did not convince the panic-stricken Dubliners. It's easy to see, though, how the case against de Burgh could have resonated among a population in very real fear. The Red Earl had just arrived ahead of the Scottish army that was about to besiege Dublin, and that force was led by none other than Robert the Bruce, who, as we saw in previous shows, was de Burgh's son-in-law. This was ripe for conspiracy theories, and some began to argue de Burgh was in fact going to betray Dublin to the Scots during the coming siege. On February the 21st, these tensions reached breaking point when a mob led by the mayor, Robert of Nottingham, marched out of the city and made their way to St Mary's Abbey. On reaching the walled compound, they demanded the Red Earl be handed over to the mob. This was an explosive act for the time. For commoners to seize a noble like Richard de Burgh was unheard of. Inside the walls of St Mary's, Richard de Burgh didn't need to think much about how he was going to respond to this. Of all the threats the Red Earl had faced in his long life, the demands of the mob outside St Mary's Abbey was unique. In the medieval world, figures like de Burgh could expect to be attacked by other nobles, like he had been during his struggle with the Lord of Offaly, John Fitzthomas. Such figures were fellow aristocrats like de Burgh, However, for commoners to attack him was not only an affront to de Burgh, but the entire medieval order. In this context, de Burgh refused to yield to the mob's demands, a dangerous course of action given he was heavily outnumbered. The crowd was in no mood for compromise. They had little time for negotiation. The Scots were, after all, bearing down on the city. So they launched an assault on St Mary's Abbey, but the Earl's private retinue launched a ferocious resistance. Seven were killed, but still Richard de Burgh would not relent. Unwilling to back down, the crowd then set the quarters of St Mary's Abbey, where the Red Earl was, on fire, and eventually he was forced out by the flames. Richard de Burgh was then brought across the river to Dublin, where he was imprisoned in the city castle. His fate was now in the lap of the gods. No one knew what would happen. If Dublin fell to his son-in-law, Robert the Bruce, the Earl would be captured in what was probably the most humiliating scenario imaginable. However, de Burgh could do nothing but wait. The Scots eventually arrived in the north bank of the River Liffey a few days later. Expecting a direct assault on the city walls on the 24th of February 1317, the inhabitants of Dublin made a desperate attempt to defend their city. They knew the Scots would launch their attack from the west side. Dublin was protected by rivers on the other approaches. In what was not an uncommon tactic, the Dubliners decided to burn the suburbs of this western side to deny the Scots any cover from the rain of arrows that they would pour down from the walls. However, this fire, set on the night of the 23rd of February, raged out of control. The Scots awoke the following morning to find Dublin ringed in an inferno. Rather than expend huge energy taking a city already partly in ruins, whose citizens would clearly mount a tenacious defence, Robert the Bruce decided to break off the siege. However, the cost for Dublin was tremendous. Around 75% of the city's houses, mainly in the suburbs, had been destroyed. Inside Dublin, while the Red Earl himself was saved the humiliation of being taken by his son-in-law, the population of the city still would not release him. Indeed, if anything, they were increasingly radicalised in what was one of the earliest uprisings in the city. 
a set of demands issued by what was called the Common Folk of Dublin petitioned the King calling for more fair and just governance in Dublin. However, as the saga dragged on, the population of Dublin knew they faced a tricky situation. They had taken the most powerful man in the land hostage and they would eventually have to release him. But first they knew they needed to negotiate terms, otherwise they could face severe punishment. This meant the Red Earl would have to linger in prison for months, as no one had the time to deal with the situation or come to his rescue. In times past, William Leah de Burgh might have marched on the city, but in 1317 he was still dealing with upheaval in the west. The Norman leader, Mailer de Exeter, was killed and Ballymoe Castle was burned that year. Meanwhile, the other nobles of Ireland had their hands busy dealing with the Scots. After he broke off the siege of Dublin, Robert the Bruce marched south into the Barrow Valley before swinging west to burn southern Kilkenny and much of Tipperary. However, it was in this campaign in the spring of 1317 that the war finally started to turn against the Scots. Edmund Butler the Justiciar was now stalking Bruce with his own army. Then, on April the 4th, Roger Mortimer finally landed in Ireland with another army raised in England. Rather than get caught between these two forces, the Scots retreated back to Ulster. This moment was decisive. On reaching Ulster, Robert the Bruce returned to Scotland, leaving his brother Edward in Ireland. While the balance now seemed to be moving towards the Normans, Mortimer and Butler didn't pursue the Scots, but instead set about re-establishing order across the south of Ireland. Two years of war had provoked numerous Gaelic revolts, but the most serious situation was that of the Red Earl in Dublin. In May 1317, a parliament was summoned and intense negotiations got underway to secure the release of Richard de Burgh. However, the situation was tense to say the least. Orders had come from the king that this parliament, a gathering of nobles, was not to meet in Dublin, as this would only result in violence between the townsfolk and the nobility. Eventually, the freedom of the earl was secured in June, after sureties were granted that the Dubliners would only be subjected to legal punishments and not any revenge attacks. While Richard de Burgh departed for England for an audience with the King, and William Leah de Burgh was pinned down in the west of Ireland, the other Norman families began to finally reorganise themselves so they could take on the Scots. Over a year later, in October 1318, Edward Bruce launched his fourth attack from Ulster, However, this force was a very different army to the one that had invaded Ireland back in 1315. On this occasion, a Norman army, led by the Red Earl's son-in-law, John de Birmingham, now blocked their way south. In a battle fought at Fahart near Dundalk, the Scots suffered their one and only defeat in Ireland, but it was crushing. Edward Bruce was killed, and with his death, the invasion, already facing difficulties, collapsed. Bruce's body was mutilated. His heart was cut out and sent to Dublin along with his hands and one quarter of his torso as a trophy of war. Meanwhile, his head was sent to King Edward II in England. In the aftermath of this defeat, the Scots' army retreated back into Ulster and from there home to Scotland. While the invasion came to an end and the Normans took control of Ulster for the first time in three years, there were still major military campaigns to be fought as a wave of retribution followed. The Norman Hubisset was outlawed for having switched sides and aiding the Scots. However, for the Normans an even greater concern was Don Loneal, the King of Tyrone, who had been Bruce's greatest supporter in Ireland. 
after the defeat at the Battle of Fahart and the collapse of the Scots, Donal must have known an onslaught was coming, and come it did. In 1319, a force of Ulster Normans, led by Henry de Mandeville, the new seneschal of Ulster, invaded with a man called Henry O'Neill. Henry O'Neill was of the Clan de Boy O'Neill family, a faction of the wider O'Neill dynasty who favoured peaceful relations with the Normans. Donal O'Neill, the old king, now in his late fifties, escaped and fled, with Henry being installed as king with Norman support. While the de Burghs slowly took back control of their lands in Ulster, the region was devastated. The lands surrounding Carrickfergus, once the heartland of Norman Ulster, was so depopulated that it was suggested it needed to be recolonised with settlers from England and Wales. The de Burghs' major castles in the region, Greencastle, Northburg and Carrickfergus, had all been taken and were in poor shape. Meanwhile, in the west, their lordship of Connacht had been savaged by the war. The biggest battle, as we saw, had been fought at Athenry. Meanwhile, the castles of Sligo, Ballymote, Meelik, Athlone, Rindoon and Roscommon, along with numerous other fortifications, had been burned, some on several occasions. The power of the family had been smashed and, to make matters worse, the two leading patriarchs, William Leah and the Red Earl, were now nearly 20 years older than they had been in the years around 1300 when they had built up the family's power. They would not be the men to rebuild it. Indeed, in the coming years they mounted no major campaigns and little is known about their lives in the 1320s. They travelled to England together in 1322 and 1323, but their days of riding side by side in the saddle, taking on their enemies on the battlefield, were over. There was, no doubt, the power of the family had been dealt a near-fatal blow by the Scots. The 1320s proved a difficult time as a generation of Norman leaders, who ruled and subdued Connacht in particular, passed away. In 1322, Richard de Birmingham, who had led the forces at the Battle of Athenry alongside William Leah de Burgh, died. Two years later, in 1324, William Leah, the man who had dominated life in the West for so long, passed away as well. Meanwhile, the Red Earl was increasingly a man of another age. In the middle of the Bruce invasion, his old rival, John Fitzthomas, by then the Earl of Kildare, had died. In 1325, his great Gaelic nemesis, Donal O'Neill, passed away in Lagor Cranogh, a man who lived out his final days in exile. However, the Red Earl himself, now over 65, lingered on. In 1326, he attended his final parliament, even though he was now seriously ill. Afterwards, he retired to the Abbey of Athassel in Tipperary, where his father Walter was buried. A few weeks later, on July 29th, 1326, Richard de Burgh, the Lord of Connacht, the Red Earl of Ulster, and the most powerful man in medieval Irish history, died. His passing was noted across Ireland as a major moment. The Annals of Connacht eulogised him as the Lord of Ulster and Connacht and the best of all the Gauls in Ireland. Gaul here is the Irish for foreigner. John Clynne, an Anglo-Norman chronicler in Kilkenny, wrote he was a skilled knight, courteous, rich, wise and full of days. However, even though this generation were dead, the violence that dominated their lives was by no means over. In the final part of Fatal Feuds, we will see the treachery, violence and brutality ratcheted up to an intolerable level with a breathtaking conclusion to the series. I'm away on holidays for the coming weeks, but I will hopefully have that show out in a fortnight. Until then, slaughter.
Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.